0: This is Lee Habib, and now it's time for our This Day in History, which is always brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College. And on this day in history, the most famous musical festival in the United States kicked off in 1969, the Woodstock Music and Art Fair, or simply Woodstock. It was a musical festival attracting an audience of over 400,000 people. Nothing like it had ever happened before. But it wasn't all just hippies, and really bad drugs, and really great music. There was a lot of money to make off those, well, all of it, the mess. Or so the investors thought, and it all started with a little ad placed in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Here's Jesse Edwards.
1: Helen Savage, please call your father at the Motel Glory in Woodridge. The warning that I've received, you may take it with however many grains of salt you wish, That the brown acid that is circulating around us is not specifically too good.
2: We're going to put the music up here for
3: free. But what it means is that these people have it in their heads that your welfare is a hell of a lot more important and the music is
4: than
5: a dollar.
6: Knowing that the pursuit of money is basically flower child kryptonite, you might be surprised to learn that the concert that defined the 60s owed its origins to some squares looking to make a buck. And I'm not talking about a buck for Tibet, either. In March of 1968, drugstore-air John Roberts and Yale law grad Joel Rosenman placed an ad in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Here, Roberts and Rosenman talk about placing that ad.
7: We were writing a show for television about uh, two young guys with more money than brains. And the only thing we didn't have was plots. We couldn't figure out what kind of nutty business ventures these two young men would get into. In desperation, we took an ad out in the in the Wall Street Journal, claiming to be a young man with quote unlimited capital looking for business propositions, and they had better be legitimate business propositions because we didn't want any any <laughs> con men to be writing it.
6: Roberts and Rosamond were then contacted by a Capital Records executive, Artie Cornfield and hippie concert promoter Michael Lang with the idea of starting a music studio in Woodstock, New York.
7: There came a letter which we thought was actually an interesting business proposition in its own right. And we did something that, in retrospect, was probably the beginning of our careers. We stopped being an anonymous box number, and we contacted this this fellow and and began to investigate a business venture.
8: Our first venture turned out to be Well, actually a year or two later, uh, the creation of a recording studio here in New York called Media Sound. And it was through Media Sound that we met Mike Lang and Artie Kornfeld. Michael had long hair and wore leather jackets with fringes and uh, bell bottoms. So when we first met, it was kind of like, you know, what are you? What are you? <laughs> when
6: that idea didn't pan out, the suit struck gold with the notion of a three-day art and music festival. Pre-sold tickets would go for $18. That's $105 in today's money. And latecomers would have to shell out 24 bucks at the gate. Here, Roberts and Rosamond described the investment as a no-brainer.
8: What caught our eye in their proposal was that really at the bottom of it was two lines. And the lines were Woodstock being the home of all of these artists... We think we could prevail on some of them to give kind of an opening day concert.
7: Hey, if we could get Dylan out of his house and we could get a couple of other of those famous artists who lived up in Woodstock to appear at at a catered cocktail party, why don't we get them to a concert we'll charge admission, we'll uh, make a fortune. This is a a real uh, no-brainer. It was a no-brainer, but in another way.
6: <laughs> Here, John Roberts, heir to the Polydent Polygrip Denture Adhesive Fortune, describes the moment he tried to explain to his father his intentions to bankroll the Woodstock Music Festival
8: with his own inheritance. I laid this out for my father uh, that while I was doing this. That he, he had said, you've rented a field 100 miles from New York City. He said, and you're going to expect... 50,000 people to come up there to listen to rock music, right? And you're going to put your own money into this venture. And I said, yeah, Dad, I am. I I really think it's a great idea. I mean, there's a whole new thing going on in the world. Hey, man, this is the 60s. And he said something like, I just knew it. (laughs) I just knew it. I just knew that the minute you got your hands on your inheritance, you would do something like this.
6: Woodstock would cost between $2.4 and $3.1 million to produce, and brought in $1.8 million from gate receipts. While the producers would eventually make money on the movie and soundtrack of the events, Roberts said that he would not get out of debt from bankrolling the event until 1980. The original venue plan for the festival was to take place in Woodstock, New York, near the proposed recording studio site. After local residents quickly shot down that idea, Roberts and Rosenman took over the search for a venue and discovered the 300-acre Mills Industrial Park in the town of Walkill, New York, which Woodstock Ventures leased for $10,000 in the spring of 1969. But town residents immediately opposed the project. In early July, the town board passed a law requiring a permit for any gathering over 5,000 people. On July 15th of 1969, the Walkeld Zoning Board of Appeals officially banned the concert on the basis that the planned portable toilets would not meet town code. After the town of Walkill declined to provide a venue for the festival, a man by the name of Max Yazger leased out one of his fields near the town of Bethel, for a fee of $10,000. Opposition to the festival began soon thereafter. We've
0: heard how Woodstock, perhaps the most famous hippie festival of all time, started out as a vehicle for investors to cash in on the peace and love counterculture movement of the 60s. And when we come back, we'll dig into the music that was played at Woodstock along with some of what was going on behind the scenes of this iconic time in history that became as American as, well, anything.
3: It's a pre-concert from now on. That doesn't mean that anything goes. What that means is we're going to put the music up here for free. What it means is that the people who are backing this thing, who put up the money for it, are going to take a bit of a bath. A big bath. That's no hype, that's true. They're
9: going to get hurt. But what it means is that these people have it in their heads that your welfare is a hell of a lot more important and a
4: music is than a dollar.
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story.
10: Dan?
11: He went with his friends to that music festival.
10: What has gotten into that kid?
11: Now, Randy, we were the same way once, too. Don't forget that we were both considered hippies back in the 60s. Yeah,
12: but when we did it, we actually stood for something.
4: I mean, remember Woodstock, Sharon? We actually
12: did something there.
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and when we left off, we learned about the investors behind the creation of the famous Woodstock Festival that started this day in history in 1969, and how it all started with that little ad placed in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. We now return to the -the behind-the-scenes look at Woodstock. Here again is Jesse Edwards.
6: So Max Yazger had agreed to lease one of his fields for the concert only weeks before the show was supposed to start. Here John Roberts and Joel Rosenman, the guys paying for the show to happen in the first place, talk about the days leading up to the event and how some tough decisions had to be made.
8: We worked feverishly for five rainy weeks to put this thing together and about a week before we realized we weren't going to make it. And we had a meeting and we were told by our construction people that we could either have a stage for the performers, or we could have fences, but we couldn't
7: have both. If we don't have a stage, this is not, no, we can't not have a stage, for God's sake. I said, Well, if we don't have tickets collected, if we don't charge admission, with what we know now, with, with having had to rebuild the entire site, we're going to lose millions of dollars. And well, I don't have millions of dollars. <laughs> and so we, we, faced with this impossible choice, we decided to sleep on it.
6: John Roberts then had a startling realization when he first arrived at the venue. A nightmare scenario was beginning to unfold.
8: And I got out of the car and um, I could look before me into the, what was to be our performance area where we were to, in theory, admit people having collected their ticket for their money. And there, sitting there, were 50,000 people. This was Wednesday.
7: <laughs>
8: it was at that moment that a light went on <laughs> in my mind and I said, We're not going to be collecting the tickets. By Friday, we realized that this show had grown from a projected 100,000 to maybe five times that number, with another million, we were told, on the way there.
6: Some people attending the concert were happy that they could just climb the fence and get in for free. Others who had actually bought their tickets were left dumbfounded and rather upset.
8: You don't even have to bother bringing your tickets or anything because they aren't going to collect them. There's no way they can. They got a fence that's like half up, and there are people just sitting in that field. It's really beautiful. Do you realize that half of these people don't have tickets? And there are people five miles away sitting on a highway with tickets who've driven two or 3,000 miles. Whatever has to be done to make it right, this is wrong. Yeah. So it's not for me to say how to do it.
0: There are ways to do it.
6: The influx of concert goers to the site in Bethel created a massive traffic jam. Fearing chaos as thousands began descending on the community, Bethel did not enforce its codes. Eventually, announcements on radio stations as far away as Manhattan and descriptions of the traffic jams on television discouraged people from setting off to the festival add to the problems and difficulty in dealing with the large crowds. Recent rains had caused muddy roads and fields. The facilities were not equipped to provide sanitation or first aid for the number of people attending. Hundreds of thousands found themselves in a struggle against bad weather, food shortages, and poor sanitation. But the show must go on. I get the first low. day officially began at 5.07 p.m. with Richie Havens.
7: With no reason. Thirty-two
6: acts performed during the sometimes rainy weekend in front of nearly half a million concert goers. During the three days, there were three deaths, two births, and four miscarriages.
13: You say it's the moon, or maybe the season.
6: A few of the performances that day included Sweetwater, Tim Harden, Ravi Shankar, Arlo Guthrie, and Joan Baez. The following day featured artists like Santana, The Grateful Dead, Credence Clearwater Revival, Janis Joplin, The Who, and Jefferson Airplane, just to name a few. Here's Jefferson Airplane's performance of their song Volunteers, live at Woodstock, 1969. final day would kick off with Joe Cocker, with performances by the band, Johnny Winter, Blood, Sweat & Tears, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, finishing with Jimi Hendrix.
13: Thank
8: you, again. You can leave if you want to. We're just jamming. That's all. Okay? You can leave or you can
6: Thank you. Hendrix was paid more than any of the other performers at Woodstock. In comparison, Santana was paid $750 for their performance. (laughs) Hendrix would go on to play his famous rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner, but it was not played on its own. It was part of a medley lasting over a half hour that included hits like Voodoo Child and Purple Haze. Hendrix performed the national anthem as a solo in the midst of this medley. tune with the idealistic hopes of the 1960s. Woodstock satisfied most of the attendees. After the concert, Maxi Asker, who owned the site of the event, saw it as a victory of peace and love. He spoke of how nearly half a million people filled with potential for disaster, rioting, looting, and catastrophe spent the three days with music and relative peace on their minds. Here's what he had to say in front of that entire audience. The
14: important
4: thing that you've proven to the world is that a half a million kids and I call you kids because I have children older than you are. A half a million young people can get together and have three days of fun and music and have nothing but fun and music and I got pleasure for it.
0: And that's the story of the famous Woodstock Festival this day in history in 1969. Depending on how you look at it, Woodstock could be considered a victory or a disaster. Actually, we know it's a little of both. But one thing is certain, what happened on that field owned by Max Yasger has become hollowed ground to people all over the world from every walk of life and an indelible, if rather smelly, part of American history, regardless of what some of us might think about everything that was going on there. This is our American Stories, and what we're about to listen to is a piece done by Reason TV entitled Red, White, and Sacra Blue. It's written and hosted by Ted Boliker. Sacre bleu. The story chronicles how the American free market spurned competition in the wine world. <laughs> America, which was once known for having the type of wine that goes good with a hamburger, ended up to the amazement of the world and especially the French, surpass- surpassing all of their competition. Let's take a listen. France has long ruled the world
10: of wine. Sure, since at least the mid 20th century, the U.S. has tried to match the sophistication of French wines. But it's been a tough sell. Say
13: hello to Gallo. Hello to Gallo wine.
10: When wine elves failed to convey sophistication, American winemakers turned to classy British actors. I like the unusual flavor of Thunderbird wine. If you don't recognize the Thunderbird label, it's because the bottle is usually covered with a brown paper bag.
8: This champagne doesn't come from France.
10: Even the legendary Orson Welles couldn't close the gap with the French.
8: Take two. Ah,
10: the French. These boozy outtakes confirmed that Yankee wines were good for just one thing. Ah, the French. Getting blitzed.
13: Get rippled.
10: American wines deserve to be paired with food of equal sophistication, says French wine expert Jean-Noel Formeau. Something like the hamburger. Because the
15: hamburger... It's not a sophisticated dish in the sense of cooking. It's
10: greasy, it's messy. Hamburger Nation could never make wine like France, so it must have sounded like a cruel joke when, in 1976, a one-of-its-kind competition was arranged. There was a tasting in Paris that uh, French wines
15: compared to California wines.
10: Mighty France versus lowly California in a blind taste test, judged entirely by French wine connoisseurs. They would sample some of the best wine from each location and vote for their favorite red and their favorite white. Formos says the French were confident, even arrogant. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be so easy. Only it wasn't so easy. The impossible happened. Hamburger Nation won top honors for both red and white. And France, took a a slap in the face. I was uh, feeling like I was born again. Mike Gergich made the winning white. It was displayed at the Smithsonian, and his story was told in a popular book. The Paris tasting made him a legend, but back then even Gergich couldn't believe he had won. I said, are you sure it's me? (laughs) How could this American, an immigrant who fled communist Yugoslavia, shock the world? Yes, California's natural gifts and his own talent were essential, but so was something else the freedom to create wine his own way different when i came from communism world was not freedom (laughs) i have used american opportunity gergic was raised in a small village in croatia he developed a taste for wine at a very young age to be honest my mama switched me from breast milk at the age of two and a half to wine and i like when Gurgits arrived in California, he was nearly penniless, but he knew he was in the right place.
4: I already felt that there is a kind of a vibration in the air that people
16: are trying to compete.
9: One of the great things that we do in America, and you hope it doesn't go away, is we have this great sense of adventure. Squire Friedel owns
10: Sonoma County's Glen Lyon Winery. He says California's history of freewheeling winemaking helped revolutionize the craft. We have a great sense of let's try something new, let's try something different. It's different in France, he says, where the government exerts control over many aspects of winemaking. They even have tasters that come out uh, from the government. Formeau was an official taster for the French government. Not a bad gig. I go to different chateaus and I taste, and the wine passes or doesn't pass. He says the rich tradition that has produced such revered wine also has a downside. The beauty of France is we
15: have a lot of traditions. The problem of France, we have so many, we cannot do anything.
10: That's just that you try Thunderbird. It's really delightful. California progressed from Thunderbird to Gurgic's award-winning wine in just a couple of decades. The centuries-old chasm between French and American winemakers was closing quickly.
15: The French were interested to understand what was going on
10: in California. Hamburger Nation could teach the French something about wine? How fun for Friedel to ponder given what he used to do for a living.
9: I was the Ronald McDonald, the second one. That was wonderful. The day I signed the contract is the day that we put the house on the market. Acting in commercials
10: gave Friedel the financial security to start his own winery. And he remembers how important the Paris
9: tasting was for the young California industry. And that course put us on the map uh, where no one could make fun of us anymore as the younger brother. Uh, but I think it was the eighties where everything started to get ramp up very quickly. We all started to get it. Up to
15: 1980, America has never been the land of uh, great food or great
10: wine. So in 1980, Formo headed
15: west. My job was to uh,
10: come to California for six months. Uh, And it's people who say to spy. So what did the wine spy find in California? An atmosphere of innovation.
15: And because of that, America has been able to create anything that has changed really the way wine is made
10: today. Innovations like stainless steel tanks or malolactic fermentation a process Gergitsch helped develop, which counteracts tartness in wine.
15: It's extremely difficult in France compared to here that you are always tied in some rules that are either government rules or quote-unquote family rules.
9: Not having the rules and regulations that they have in much of Europe and particularly in France, we're able to experiment. Friedel recalls his first experiments. First wines just sucked. They were not very good at all. But
10: you learn. First he planted Cabernet grapes, but eventually he discovered the climate was a tad too cool for them. He switched to Syrah, and since then his Syrah has been served in some of America's finest restaurants. What if he tried this grape switcheroo in France? You can't do it. You just can't do it. In France it would be illegal for Friedel to switch to Syrah, Pinot Noir, or any other unapproved grape. If I want to grow Pinot Noir, I want to be able to grow Pinot Noir. Too bad, the French government decides which grapes may be planted where. The government regulates everything from alcohol content to pruning methods. The result? It's harder for French winemakers to innovate. The French wine industry is uh, floundering. France still exports more wine, but look at how American exports have grown since the 1976 tasting. The U.S. and other New World winemakers are gaining market share and challenging French dominance.
15: I think France has been lost a little bit for a while.
10: Formeau grew weary of French rules and traditions.
15: I don't like that weight of tradition, but on the top of that, they don't like people like me who come with new ideas. It doesn't go with the establishment.
10: What was supposed to be a six-month reconnaissance mission has turned into nearly 30 years in a new land. Formeau quit his job as an official taster for the French government, and as co-founder of Chateau Potel, he's now a celebrated wine entrepreneur in California.
15: Here I felt free and I could be successful. And that's why I've been doing here what I have couldn't have done in France.
10: But don't forget about France. Formos says global competition has forced French winemakers to step up their game. And that means better wine for all of us.
0: This is Our American Stories, and we thank Reason TV for that piece. Go to Reason.com. And the piece was called Red, White, and Sacra And by the way, we love Sacre telling... Sacra Blue. And we love telling stories about, well, innovation, competition, and free enterprise, and just what freedom does. And the country that produces the great hamburger also does produce great wine. That's right. And that's Jesse. He can't help himself. This is Our American Stories. And listen to all that we do by going to ouramericannetwork.org. Our Dodd-Frank series, Where Have You Gone, George Bailey, is terrific on this same kind of subject. Also, the work we've done with hair braiding and credentialing where the government's coming in and micromanaging our lives. Look what it's done to French wines, and look what it's doing for American wines not having that level of intervention. Again, this is Our American Story. our American stories and we've been doing a healthcare series called Better Health at Lower Cost brought to you by the Stetson Family Office and this is our second on Alzheimer's and we start off with a man named John talking about his wife Carrie and what it was like dropping her off at a memory care center.
17: Today is the first day of the rest of my life I took my wife to a memory care facility, the place where she will spend the rest of her life There was no movie-style ending to the conclusion to the first part of our lives. No tearful goodbyes. I drive the 15 miles from our home without explanation. I take her hand and lead her into her new home. I tell her that she needs changes to her medication that require her to stay a few days. She smiles, but I do not sense a level of understanding. We are met and greeted warmly by several of the professional staff who guided us to the room that will be her new home. We walk slowly. She stops several times to admire the artwork that punctuates the hallway to her room. She has always loved art. Over the years, she passed on that appreciation to me, one of the many gifts she gave me the first 50 years of our life together. We visited hundreds of art museums around the world and shared our enjoyment of some of the greatest masterpieces. Along the way, she gets excited about the pictures of other residents' children and grandchildren. She worked with children all of her life and today, they are the one thing that can get her to rise above her disease. She loves them all. We reached her room and she smiles again with recognition of many of the things she has loved through the years that I have secretly moved here. Her collections of Native American art, crystal hearts, and books catch her attention. She glances around the room Her eyes coming to rest on the many photographs of family and friends living and deceased, and she beams yet again. They are all alive in her mind, and although many of the names are forgotten, the memory of their love and friendship is clear and strong. Far too soon, the support staff returns to divert her so that I can leave without her knowing I have gone. I leave thinking positively that we will continue to share experiences as we have in the past. I will just have to share those experiences for the both of us. I have memories of the past and hopes for the future, but Alzheimer's has taught me the importance of the moment. Nothing else really matters. Each day is complete with its victories and setbacks, and I rejoice or feel sorrow as each occurs. Tomorrow is very far away.
11: This story is one that is told over and over. Same story, different people. This is just one of many of those whose spouse or family member has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. David Dolby, the son of Ray Dolby, an inventor and the man who created Dolby Sound, decided to take initiative along with his mother when his father Ray was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He's been involved since 2010.
1: Uh, My name is David Dolby. I live in San Francisco and... I'm working on a number of different initiatives uh, to help accelerate the path to a cure for Alzheimer's disease. And I do this through our family foundation called the Ray and Dagmar Dolby Family Fund, uh, as well as through our family office uh, venture capital fund called Dolby Family Ventures. And one thing that struck me early on in learning about Alzheimer's disease was There were many gaps that were slowing down the pace of innovation and the rate of discovery and the impediment to allowing investors to gain confidence in opportunities. Uh, Many of the largest companies in the pharma space looking at neurodegenerative diseases had been uh, becoming more reluctant to double down on investments. They were watching many failures in the space as uh, drugs proceeded into the clinic and undergoing human clinical trials with, with negative results. And so uh, really our, our initiatives are all in, in service to fill the funnel with drugs in the pipeline, being able to better characterize and identify patients and uh, really give alternative uh, innovative ideas uh, an opportunity to be tested. My father uh, was Ray Dolby, an American inventor. Uh, when he was in his late 70s, he uh, received a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, and we quickly became aware that there wasn't a disease-modifying drug available to him or to anybody. We knew we wanted to spring into action, uh, and the, the way we knew how was to sort of follow in his footsteps of uh, investing in innovation and identifying Uh, people that were taking risk in the space and working on important and challenging problems uh, and really try and understand what's the right set of questions to ask at each step along the way. What is our theory of causality of the disease? Alzheimer's disease is composed of a number of different factors which contribute to each individual's uh, resilience as well as their vulnerability to be affected by uh, bad actors that are either native to our systems with mutation or uh, infections that come about or really the the cascading effects of other environmental factors or factors of aging. Uh, It's only been in the last uh, perhaps 30 or 40 years that we've started to fully accept that uh, dementia is not a normal part of aging and that it's something we believe we can reverse. And that the way to uh, address this is to understand at what stage of progression is it still possible to interrupt these processes and ideally also reverse the effects.
11: It is impossible for just one group to have all the funds that they need in the discovery of the prevention and cure of this disease. This is a project the whole world has had to gather together in order to find answers The FINGER study, which is the Finnish Geriatric Intervention Study to Prevent Cognitive Impairment and Disability, investigated the effects of a two-year intervention, targeting several lifestyle and vascular risk factors simultaneously. The main aim is to prevent cognitive impairment, and secondary aims include decreasing disability, cardiovascular risk factors and related morbidities, depressive symptoms, and to have beneficial effects on the quality of life. Here is the lead researcher, Mia Kivipelto.
16: I was the the person starting the finger trial. I am a physician, I'm MD. So for me, it has been always kind of interesting to work with interventions as well really trying to move from observation to action. So I felt that now it's time to initiate something new. So I simply took the group and we researched money and started the finger trial. That was 10 years ago. I have actually my grandmother uh, who got Alzheimer's when I was young. I was a teenager. She was living in the same house where I was living. At that time, it took very long time before she got the diagnosis. So I still can remember the feeling. She she was very close to me. And when she was, you know, changing her behavior, she was trying to hide things. She got a little bit different kind of personality. So that personal experience has Help me to understand how much Alzheimer's can mean for you and how important it is to try to find new means.
11: Two-year multi-center randomized controlled trial with 1,260 participants aged 60 to 70 years recruited from previous studies. Participants were randomized into either the multi-domain intervention group or the control group.
16: And the intervention was two years, and really the results have been very encouraging. There have been earlier very many negative trials, but the earlier ones have been using single domain intervention. That means that they have been mainly focusing only on one intervention or one risk factor, for example, physical activity. So the results were very clear. There was a clear difference in cognition. So here the intervention group had 25% higher improvement. And finally, we can also see that even the risk for cognitive and functional decline is lower in the intervention group and they have better health-related quality of life, even the risk of other diseases.
11: Finger in finger study has come to mean more than its original acronym. Now. It symbolizes all hands and fingers across the world coming together to find the cure and prevention for this disease. The Cooper Clinic of Preventive Medicine, located in Dallas, Texas, has some suggestions for living a brain healthy lifestyle. Things like exercising your mind daily with crossword puzzles or Scrabble, getting at least 30 minutes of exercise a day. We have all become very aware that heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. But Dr. Cooper also encourages us to remember that what is good for your heart is also good for your brain. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories.
0: And great job, as always, Faith. And we'll bring you more stories about Alzheimer's because it touches so many millions of American families and our scientific community is hard at work trying to get solutions. This is Lee Habib, John and Kerry's story, the Dolby family story, so many families in this country's stories here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and the minute you hear that music, you're put into a time and a place, and Jesse and I often think we should be doing a two-hour special on just great soundtracks to movies, because the music is just so astounding, and so good, and always suits the purpose, and again, that's the Godfather soundtrack, we love to talk about art here, and we love to talk about actors and musicians And even comedians, our hour on Steve Martin, we urge you to go to Our American Network, go on the search button, and find that Steve Martin hour. It's terrific. There's no precedent for John Cazale. He's an anomaly in cinematic history. He appeared on the big screen, wholly formed, and immediately made an indelible imprint. And then just as suddenly, six years later, he was gone. In that short time, he created four characters in five feature films. The Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather Part two, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. Oh my goodness, that's crazy. That can still be regarded over 40 years later as benchmarks of film acting. He was Fredo, by the way, in The Godfather. And we'll get to that later, but I just wanted to give you an idea of who he was. John's work, like his life, cannot be accurately measured in duration, only in depth. The entirety of his screen time in all five movies boils down to mere minutes. But the more we see, the more we cannot look away. It isn't simply that he had the distinction of only appearing in masterpieces. It is that his performances within them are also masterpieces. Those who mistake celebrity for ability may question how good he really was, After all, he wasn't really a movie star. He was never billed above the title. But John Cazale is acting's best-kept secret. He played one of the most iconic characters in film history, as I'd said before, Fredo Corleone from The Godfather. Yet today, most people don't even know his name. To prove this point, a picture was shown of John Cazale playing Fredo to people walking the streets of New York City. Here's their reaction.
16: You know who this guy is?
0: Nope.
9: Nope. Something from the Godfather.
16: He was the oldest one. He was a little slow.
8: The the, the son that betrayed.
16: Yes.
2: I guess.
11: Did he play Fre- Fredo? Yeah,
8: Fredo.
2: Uh, Fredo. Uh, Fredo. Fredo.
14: Fredo. 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 Do you remember? Do you do you know uh, what the actor's name is? Well, his name was Fredo.
6: Uh, wait, I'm going to get it. Get it. Oh, I love this guy, too. What
9: was his name? He was very good. Fredo. Yeah,
14: yeah. I know it was you, Fredo. I know it was you, Fredo.
0: <laughs> the actors John Cazell supported, Robert De Niro, Gene Hackman, Al Pacino, and Meryl Streep among them, all said working with John Cazell made them better. He greatly influenced many others, such as Steve Buscemi, Sam Rockwell, and the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, who were of the following acting generations. If the Academy Awards can be regarded as an indicator of climactic excellence, John has an impeccable track record, not just for himself. He was never mentioned in the nominations for his acting, probably because the Academy never caught him doing any. It's a well-known bit of movie trivia that all five films in which he appeared were nominated for Best Picture and three of them received the Oscar. Further, he appeared posthumously in archival footage in The Godfather Part III, which was also nominated for Best Picture, maintaining his perfect record. He is the only actor in history to have this distinction. John Cazell was more than eager to explore the dark, damaged sides of his characters. In doing so, he presented us with a human instead of a type. Let's fast forward to a scene from Godfather Two, where we hear a little bit about John's gift as an actor and his approach to his craft. We open with a scene between John playing Fredo and Al Pacino playing his brother, Michael.
3: Mike, you don't come to Las Vegas and talk to a man like Mo Green like that.
4: Fredo, you're my older brother and I love you, but don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. By the way, the subtlety in his acting uh, is, was so amazing, the the emotional depth of it. When Al arrives in Las Vegas and John is already there, and he's got the band set up and the hookers.
12: He does like this kind of, the band is playing, he does this kind of thing, and it's just so brilliant. I mean, that dance.
3: Welcome to Las Vegas. his idea right
12: and i'll say get rid of
4: them get rid of them fredo
3: hey my god
4: fredo i'm here on business i leave tomorrow and i get rid of them i'm tired and the look on his face was so amazing the, the emotional depth of it a whole kind person became present in that one reaction to Al ordering him about like that. Hey, come on, Ram! That's where John fit in so miraculously because all of that vulnerability, all of that pain that was in John as a man is suddenly connecting with us on a level that we never thought
12: possible.
18: In the late 50s, we both were in acting class together studying with Peter Cass. Peter Cass was quick to see what you might be ashamed of in yourself and in your background and to point out that this was part of who you were and that you needed every part of yourself the idea of only presenting yourself in the best light was anathema to him i mean if you look at john's work you see how willingly he went to the dark side (laughs) and how capable he was of doing that
16: john felt very strongly that finding the character you had to find the pain first where that character was in pain, where he hurt. He felt that that was the major motivation, and that would translate into positive choices as an actor.
12: I think the artist is born in a suffering child, and uh, there are all kinds of reasons for children to suffer, and I I don't know exactly what it was that was John's reason, but I could venture a guess, certainly, it was probably, you know, a strong, overbearing father. That was difficult.
0: The life of John Cazell for the hour. More after these messages. This is our American stories. We continue with the life of John Cazale and you're listening to the soundtrack of The Deer Hunter. It's beautiful. And by the way, that, that point that somebody made before, they knew how to find the pain in the character. That was what Cazale did. And in doing so, I think found pain in all of us. Cazale's five films received 40 Oscar nominations. In addition Fourteen of the performances by actors he supported were nominated for Oscars. This is not a coincidence. He enriched every film in which he acted. He inspired every actor with whom he worked. Far more impressive than John's association with Oscar-nominated films was the acting he did in them. But what he did was something beyond acting, what can be called transcendent acting or non-acting. Sir Ben Kingsley observed, The camera is allergic to acting. John's characters tend to just stick in our minds because, as opposed to just seeing them, we feel as if we're meeting them. For those who weren't alive when The Godfather premiered, it is hard to quantify its impact on the culture. There is no contemporary equivalent. The only comparison is the arrival of the Beatles in America. The opening of The Godfather, like the arrival of the Beatles, was similar to a cultural earthquake Nothing was quite the same afterwards. And like the Beatles, The Godfather has remained contemporary. Shortly after the film premiered, a joke started to circulate. Someone would say, In our family, he's Fredo. Everyone would laugh because they knew exactly what that meant. The subject of the joke was weak, inept, a bit stupid perhaps, most certainly a loser. No one ever said, In our family... He's Solonzo or Clemenza or Tessio. What would that mean? But Fredo, everyone knew. It was vivid, clear, perfect. Because the actor who portrayed Fredo, someone named John Cazale, made him vivid, clear, and perfect. From the moment he comes into view in The Godfather, he commands the screen, not through bombast or bravura, but with sublime subtlety. In the midst of the noisy activity of the wedding celebration, he slowly and quietly approaches the table where Brother Michael and Kay are sitting. Kay was played by Dan Keaton. When he appears, he is quite drunk, but John is too fine an actor to play drunk. Instead, he plays a drunken man trying to appear sober. He steps carefully and slowly, puts his hand on Kay's chair to steady himself, and kneels down in his tux. To get eye level with Michael and Kay.
4: How are you, Fredo? Fredo, my brother Fredo. This is Kay Adams. Hi. How are you doing?
13: <laughs>
4: this is my brother Mike. Are you having a good
3: time? Huh? Yeah. yeah. This is your friend, huh?
0: <laughs> the whole scene takes twenty-one seconds, but it tells us vital information. Fredo is a lover in a family of killers, with his inhibitions lowered by alcohol, we see he is sweet, he's affectionate, he's soft-spoken. He doesn't belong there. He's not looking for power. He's looking for love and acceptance. And maybe, just maybe, a little bit of respect. But the scene where Don Corleone, played by Marlon Brando, is shot in front of his son Fredo, Brando was reportedly so impressed with John's commitment to his role that he laid in the street off camera while John shot his close-ups to afford him the greatest sense of reality in the scene. After The Godfather, John was cast as Stan, the assistant to an introverted paranoid surveillance consultant in The Conversation, a psychological mystery thriller written, produced, and directed by Francis Ford Coppola and starring Gene Hackman. Here's Coppola, Meryl Streep, and Philip Seymour Hoffman.
17: He was able to tackle anything that came up in the first Godfather. Then I wrote a role for him in the conversation.
5: <laughs> He's a nice guy for a cop.
17: I knew what was just a character of an assistant would suddenly come to life as a real character.
18: The conversation was a cult film people already had it on as their favorite film of all time especially people who wanted to show that they were impervious to the mass taste you know like it's not the godfather that I love the most it's
2: I would almost bet money that all the actors that worked with him were inspired by what he did on the day to take it that much further, to be that much more creative or, or risky uh, or personal. Because he seemed to be kind of uncomfortably vulnerable with mean, everything he did, and that always makes people go, oh, I think I got to work a little harder. <laughs> I think I better rethink what I'm doing here because this guy's really going for it.
0: This guy's really going for it, and that was Philip Seymour Hoffman, that last clip. John took roles that no actor would want, and by virtue of his performances, he managed to turn them into parts every actor wished he'd played. Here's Al Pacino and Meryl Streep. Streep starred with Cazale in his last film, The Deer Hunter, and was also his longtime girlfriend.
14: Freedom, come with me. It's the only way out of here tonight.
4: Roth is dead. Freedom.
14: He became whoever it was he was playing. And he did that by asking questions, because he taught me about asking questions and not having to answer them. That's the beauty. What's wonderful about it is you open the door to things.
18: Directors used to call him 20 questions. He was never, never, never satisfied with just the outlines of a character or just filling out the expected thing.
14: He got so much from the delving into things. It was a lesson in itself. I think I learned more about acting from John. Than anybody
0: That's a pretty heady statement That's Al Pacino saying he learned more about acting than anybody And he studied with Lee Strasberg And he studied with Uta Hagen The two masters of the New York theater And of film Amazing There are moments in each of John Cazell's performances So real So vulnerable That one wonders If he should be watching Unlike most actors, there was never an instance in any of his performances when John was winking at the audience, trying to signal that the character's deficiencies didn't apply to him personally. Here's Francis Ford Coppola on the infamous I'm smart and I want respect scene from The Godfather 2 between Cazale and Pacino. Cazale's haunting countenance and strong portrayal of weak characters is unmatched.
17: I remember when we shot that scene, and uh, and, and thinking that uh, we had shot something really that had come to life and was extraordinary, and uh, very definitely the way he used the, used the chair, because that chair was there, and certainly you could slump in it and everything. But somehow he used it to express what was the point in a way that um, I
14: had never anticipated. I've always taken care of you, Fredo.
3: Taking care of me? You're my kid brother and you take care of me? Did you ever think about that? Did you ever once think about that? Send Fredo off to do this, send Fredo off to do that. Let Fredo take care of some Mickey Mouse nightclub somewhere. Send Fredo to pick somebody up at the airport. I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's
5: the way Pop wanted
3: it. It ain't the way I wanted it! I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Like dumb, I'm smart, and I want respect.
2: He's such an imp, you know? He's so irresponsible, and I'd be so desperate. He's so anxious to get his piece of the pie and to be respected. A heartbreaking scene. And what are we talking about? We're talking about a
4: totally antisocial and probably terrible man. And, uh, Cazal broke your heart.
3: He really let himself out there. He's really vulnerable. You know, it's not easy to play weak. You know, if you get the script for The Godfather, you know, every young actor's going to want to play Sonny or Michael. You know? They're not going to want to play Fredo.
2: You want to be strong, and you want to be, hmm. So you want to say, look how talented I am.
9: Weakness is something that a lot of actors, I think, are afraid to play. They'll, they'll play weak men, but they'll do it in a really sort of showboaty way to let you know that they're not weak, that it's a performance. And Cazal was just so disinclined to do that.
0: And by the way, we're disinclined to do that in our lives, too. We all do it. We know it. And we do it with our friends, we do it with our family members, and I think this is why we seek refuge in art. It is the one place where we can then talk to people about characters and talk about ourselves while we're doing it. And that's why we spend a lot of time here in art and storytelling. And this is Our American Stories, and when we come back, more on the life of John Cazale. One of the great actors you know, but don't know. Who changed, I believe, and I know Greg, who helped And did this piece, will have changed acting as we know it for some of the great actors in America. More after these messages. Talking about John Cazell for the hour. And we love talking about art here on our American stories and music. And what's beautiful about movies is the intersection of screenwriting so there's the writing, there's that human talent, almost that operatic talent of the actor. And then, of course, there's the music. And again, one day we're going to be putting together, and I hope real soon. Just an hour or two on soundtracks and the stories of the people behind those soundtracks. Because a soundtrack can make or break a movie. And you're listening to the soundtrack from The Deer Hunter. And by the way, to remind you, Cazale, well, he created four characters in five feature films that I think can still be regarded as benchmarks of film acting. And the films he were in, all of them received Oscar nominations. And that's pretty unbelievable. John's art was ahead of the curve in the evolution of acting. That's what made him special. When the 20th century began with silent movies, acting was demonstrative. It was demonstrative. It was exaggerated. Lots of big gestures. It was still based in the traditions of the stage. Because on the stage, you've got to hit the back row. And thus, the big gestures. As the technology developed, first with the introduction of sound and then with the refinements in the process itself, actors came to understand they could be subtler in their performances. Still, the desire to emote, to show off, was always present. During the 1950s, actors such as two of John's idols, Montgomery Cliff and Marlon Brando, embraced Stanislavski's method of acting and he's a Russian critic and teacher of acting, and began to explore the underlying motivations and emotions in their characters. So, in other words, going from representational acting to, well, getting under the skin acting. This resulted in greater realism, along with heightened emotionalism, which showed itself in climactic moments. John didn't push anything. Instead, he could invite people in and compel them to draw closer to the character he was playing. But back to the story. What John knew was that our perception of someone comes from nonverbal input, much more than verbal. How many times have you said, I met this guy and he seemed okay, but there was just something about him I didn't like. It was nothing he said or did, that's for sure. It was just a sense that you got about him. That sense comes from all the energy generated by what the guy is thinking and feeling, all the things that make up his history, and therefore his personality. It works the same way in acting, and Cazelle knew how to find this life in his characters. Paradox was always present in his work. He didn't play good guys. All his characters had flaws, some more than others. He played a pimp, a thief, and perhaps a killer, and a braggart who waved a gun in the faces of his friends and, at least once, punched a woman. The most normal of his characters was a professional voyeur. Yet somehow we have affection for each of these men or at least an acceptance of them, and that's because John never judged the character he was playing. He understood the character, all the characters. Such understanding can only come through exploring their humanity, their motivation. Here's Steve Buscemi and co-star Al Pacino discussing Cazale's role as bank robber Sal in Dog Day Afternoon.
5: Just from the moment you see him on screen in Dog Day Afternoon... He's so um, you, the manager. He's so strange-looking. You know, a really intense face, and then you know the the receding hair uh, hairline, the huge forehead, and then the long hair. Um, I had just never seen a character like that on film before. Just keep
4: talking like nothing was wrong.
14: I remember we were casting, and Sidney Lumet wanted a a nineteen-year-old boy. To, he, he thought that would be very important, and he was sort of right. I'd been reading a lot of people for it, and Al kept asking me to uh, to read John. So, of course, Sidney. I would think, with John, that's not what I'm thinking, John Gazelle, no, the guy who did Fredo, no. Finally, because I've got such respect for Al, John came in,
4: and I was just stunned. He could not have looked wronger, and then he read. And it was just the most extraordinary connection.
14: I ain't going back to that prison, sonny. But I got the image of him in my mind, you know, that image of that like, character. Oh man, everything he did, the hair, that, yeah. the
4: movement. Him. You come with me. Watch him.
13: Sit down. Sit down.
14: The intensity. Wow.
5: You know, he's very intense, uh, but but nervous. I mean, you felt at any time that he could
9: really lose it. David! Cazal is scary in that movie. He completely erases the dynamic that he had with Pacino in the Godfather movies.
4: Hey, you! manager! Don't get ideas! I barked. That man there, see him? He bites.
9: You don't ever really believe, when you're watching the movie, that Pacino is going to kill someone. Cazal, you think, might. There's a way out of this. I'm telling you, there's a way out of this. Were you serious
14: about what you said? About what? About the... About throwing those bodies at
4: the door. Yeah, well, that's what I want, and you know, that's what I want him to think. I want to what you think. Because
15: I'll tell you right, right now, I'm ready to
3: do it. Well, I'll tell you something. When he says that line, you believe he's ready to kill somebody just out of fear, you know. And, and I think that, that intensity level's in his eyes throughout the entire film he he provides that it's right there those eyes it's like they cut to him a lot in that movie and it's it's cuz he's got that he's got the stakes and Lamette needs that to get the audience revved up
4: there's just something in that face that takes you into uh, an area that's very dark personally dark and heartbroken
0: heartbroken and dark And, well, that's Cazale. A compelling choice John made was to play Sal in this movie in the direction opposite that which most actors would choose. Typically, the psychotic gunman starts out soft-spoken and builds to a frenzy by the climax of the film. But here, instead, Sal is commanding at the start, barking orders at people, dominating them, Then, as the situation grows more complicated, he retreats inside of himself. And the quieter he gets, the more dangerous he becomes. And by the way, that's so complicated and so brilliant. And you would read a script, and there's no way you could come up with that. You know, when I first looked at a screenplay and a script for theater, and I studied acting for a long time, I just was so overwhelmed with all the choices you could make how to do it. It's not like reading a novel. When you read a novel, it's all there for us. But in the end, I agree with something a great acting coach once said. For the ordinary American, for the ordinary person, or even the average actor, it's best to just watch Shakespeare performed because to read it is to miss the point. It's a blueprint for actors. And it's an emotional blueprint. And there's emotional data all over the place. But the average person can't see it. They can't see the subtext they can't see the stage. They can't hear the music. And my goodness, Cazell could hear all of that. He could see all of it somehow. And that's what made him great. Also, what he did was these opposites. He, he was able to do the opposite. If you ever get to see on the waterfront, there's a scene where Rod Steiger is going to sell out his brother. He's telling his brother, an aspiring possible boxing champ, to throw a fight for the mobsters. And you would think Marlon Brando would come through the seat. And punch his brother. But all Brando does is the opposite. And all he says is, Charlie. Charlie. Like he was just disappointed. That's what made Brando great. It's what made Cazale great. This is Our American Stories. Our final segment on the life of John Cazale after these messages. say John Cazale had a great sense of humor. As with all other aspects of his acting, there was no effort to his humorous moments, no reach. He never signaled intent to be funny. He was completely real, but was capable of such subtle nuance. He catches us unexpectedly, and we laugh in spite of ourselves. To be sure, though, like in The Godfather, we are laughing at Fredo, this sad little drunken man, not with him as it was with Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp. He is not in on the joke. But there is such vulnerability to him that we almost feel embarrassed by our laughter. Let's go back to Cazell's performance in Dog Day Afternoon.
12: There isn't a sadder character than than Sal in Dog Day Afternoon, and yet he's hilarious.
4: Sal! Sal! What? Where
14: are you?
12: And it's not about funny lines at all. It's just, I mean, from the haircut to the everything, everything about it is comic.
14: Now,
4: you got to understand something. If we leave the country, there's no coming back here. One of the funniest moments in the movie was completely unexpected. It was an improvised moment. Is there any special country you want to go to? Wyoming. The country that's all right I, i'm gonna take care of it now i don't know where that came from i know that the take was almost ruined because i started to laugh but i thank god didn't wreck the soundtrack and al almost broke up
16: you know that's a laugh if you want to get a laugh there he would no more go for that you know and so because of that, it's just, instead of, you know, he goes past the stage of, ha-ha, Wyoming, that's not a country. He, he goes past that, and you are forced into this sort
18: of anxiety and sorrow for the guy. Even in the funniest characters that he played, there was also always something tragic in it. Indeed. Even in the most tragic characters, there was always something very funny.
2: The character he's creating, I believe, is not some, is not necessarily something that, that that the director or the writer envisioned. I think what he brought to it ultimately was something that surprised the hell out of everyone on the day happened.
14: Yeah, you'd start a scene, and then, you know, it would never start. That was the beauty of it. Then you realize, don't start. There's no such thing. It's just it's a continuum. You know, everything is a continuum. And so he would just say what'd you do today al after i just said a line to him you know he said you seem like you uh you said you were going to go to some and he would get you there and you would just do this dance until you found your way and then the improvisations would start which was and then the improvisations would go and when they started to connect to what the reality of the scene was he'd start to see god it was just it was glorious it was glorious. I've seen a ton of actors around John
12: just give it a couple of minutes and you just see them go, what's that? What's he doing?
14: How's he do that? No. What's the matter with you? We're you doing? made me a promise. Didn't you? Did you promise me something? huh? Yeah. Did you say either we get away clean or we kill ourselves? Did you say that? But happened? I'm not talking. Did I'm- you? I'm not talking you about that not- I do, believe. do you believe... in keeping your promises? Huh? Yeah, but I'm not Then cost- does it still go? Yes, well, it still goes. Well, what the f*** are you talking about?
12: Other actors either, you know, rose to the occasion, and they didn't. Pacino definitely did. I think Al is one of the great actors of my generation, and uh, John gets a big assist. He just,
14: he constantly made him better and better. He was inspiring. I mean, you just got, you got a,
0: you got inspired by it. So you did it. You went, he made you better. After Dog Day Afternoon, Cazale, a heavy smoker, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. At the time, casting had begun for the 1978 epic Vietnam War drama The Deer Hunter, starring Robert De Niro and Christopher Walken. Cazale was cast as Stanley, a Pennsylvania steelworker. All scenes involving Cazale were filmed first. Because of his illness, the studio initially wanted to fire him. But Meryl Streep, John's girlfriend, whom he was living with at the time, and director Michael Cimino, both threatened to walk away if they fired him. He was also uninsurable at the time, and according to Streep, Robert De Niro paid for his insurance because he wanted John Cazale in the film. It was going to be all right, Nicky. Go ahead, shoot!
12: I learned about when we were, Michael and I were meeting with actors, and I was reading with some actors. At one point, uh, he wanted to use John, and and there was an issue about his being not well.
9: John Cazale had already been diagnosed with cancer and was uninsurable. Obviously, if if you die halfway through um, giving your performance, it's going to cost a great deal of money to recast you. And
18: Bob De Niro went to bat for John... He won't tell me because he's a very generous person, but I think he secured the bond on John's uh, participation. He was
12: uh, sicker than we thought, but I wanted him to be in it.
18: So Bob put his money down and got him in the film. And he was great in the movie. I mean, he was just beautiful in it. Hey, Stux! Hey! Hey!
13: Hey! Yeah. Hey, man, how you
4: doing? Right. Hey, where was you? Where
5: was you? Where, where was I? Where were you? Where was you? We had everything all set there. The beer, the fried axles. Am where I right? Huh? Got
9: a mustache. Yeah. Hey, he looks pretty good. I think it's very clear that, that his talents were getting richer with every movie. I remember watching that movie. I just felt like I was there in that town with these guys. I, I didn't feel like they were acting.
3: Anybody see my boots? He's saying, uh, you know, let me, lend me your boots. lend me your boots. And, uh, De Niro's like, no, man. Hey, Mike, let me borrow your spares, huh? Your expert pair? No, Stan. What do you mean, no? Just what I said,
4: no. No means no.
5: Some f- friend. You're some f- friend, you know that?
3: You gotta learn, Stanley. Every time you come up here, you got your f- head up your ass. Maybe he likes the view from up there, huh? <laughs> he says, uh, he says, Stan, you see this? This is this. This is this. This ain't something else. This is this. From now on, you're on your own. Hey, you know you're trouble, Mike Conn. Huh? Nobody ever knows what the f*** you're talking about. This is this. What the hell is that supposed to mean? This is this.
5: You could watch the movie and the scenes that, that he's in and, and just watch him and be thoroughly entertained or really moved.
0: And that was Steve Buscemi. John Cazale died before the deer hunter was released. He was 42. No story about John Cazale is complete without mentioning his girlfriend, and again, a young actress at the time named Meryl Streep. But
14: the most amazing thing to see was Meryl during all of this, and the way she was with him and by his side, right, right through the whole thing. Meryl, she was with him to the end, and she, at the hospital at the end, she was an angel. She was.
16: I so admired how how she behaved. It was. It was very beautiful. It was very, he was a very fortunate guy to have someone who loved him that much during his last days.
14: When I saw that girl there with him like that, I thought, there's nothing like that. I mean, that's that's it for me, as great as she is in all her work. That's what I think of when I think of her, that moment.
0: That's what I think of. Here's Al Pacino sharing a story about his friend.
14: I was doing a play called The Basic Training of Pablo Hummel on Broadway. And it was a really great role. And I had, I had done things with it, and I had gotten the Tony Award, and I was really, uh, you know, I remember John was coming to see it. And I don't like to know when anyone's in the house, but I knew John was in the house, right? And every single thing I did, every scene I did, I was trying to impress John. And I knew I'm doing this. I'm saying, this, I'm not doing this. I'm trying to impress John. You know? And uh, it was over. And I was really unhappy because I knew I hadn't done And John came back <laughs> and he said, it's very impressive. <laughs> very impressive. I thought, uh, yes, John. I said, you know what? I said, he was so graceful, though. He was so gracious about it all. But I I said, you know, I I, I knew you were there, and I was trying to... I was doing everything twice as much as I had to do it, you know. He says, it was good, It was good. It was good. He said, you don't know. You don't realize that, you know, you've been there. But I knew I had... So I was very... You know, he was like one of my idols, so that when he was coming to see me, it was... That's, that's you definitely. give all out and that's the worst thing you can do is try to impress your, your friends who you love
0: yeah, imagine how good John Cazale was though Al Pacino was nervous and wanted to impress him here's one final story about John from Steve Buscemi
5: I had a really weird experience uh, surreal
0: I did uh, a voice on
5: uh, The Simpsons where I played a bank robber so I'm watching The Simpsons when it Aired, and my partner, they they did a likeness of uh, John Cassell. I was like humbled. I was like, oh my God, I'm acting with John. I don't know. I just, I, I really felt proud. <laughs> I was like, hey, I really did, you know, I really did become an actor, and this proves it.
0: <laughs> Screenwriter and director Israel Horowitz, who knew and loved John well, who found the same astonishment in him that so many others had, may have discovered the ideal summation when he called his friend "quote a small perfection," and so he was, and in his films, so he is. The life of John Kazell. This is our American stories. Great job on this script, Greg, as always. Great job, team. Let's go out with the Godfather. Thank you.